Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Yo, yo, yo. We have two special guests today. PSU fans, but of course, the more important guests. Who do we have here, Sean? We, we have Barkley here. She's not as small as she used to be, but she is much better behaved now. Yeah, Doozy in the chat before we even went live wanted the dog update from Sean. Uh, how, how's she doing? So we actually sent her to a board and train program. Uh, it was like a two-week program. It was a little expensive, but what they did is they sent her for two weeks and they did um, all of the training with her. So when we got her back, she was very well behaved and it was a much better process. So like now she'll listen to me for the most part on things. She still does some puppy things, but overall it's much better. There you go. There you go. Um, and for those of you guys who don't know Sean, if, if you guys are Roto Grinder subs, you are well familiar with Sean's work over there. He's working in the premium stuff. He is the niche sports king. He's over here grinding. And he's also, of course, uh, one of the sharpest DFS players all around. So I'm excited to pick your brain today. You know, I've been doing these shows and trying to focus more on overall GPP strategy, getting ourselves in the right mindset for for game theory and how to win tournaments as opposed to the stuff that's just you and me talking about defensive line mismatches. I figured this would be a better use of our time. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's been an interesting year so far in the NFL. We've had a lot of COVID-related issues, not as much as we've seen in college football. College football has been wild, Uh, but we've had a lot of different COVID issues, uh, a lot of different single entry stuff. I've had a really good strategy I'll have to break down later that's been Really, really profitable so far this year in NFL. But it, it's not for the week, the week uh, of heart, but it's been very profitable thus far. Wow. Now I'm intrigued. I will not forget that. We will circle back to that here in a second. Uh, Sean's taking care of dog stuff here. I will. Uh, one thing I want to ask you about. So last year we did this show. Um, and as I've mentioned on the show a lot, I was a I was a trash DFS player last year at this time. And I've made lots of strides. And one of the things that helped me a lot was I was primarily only playing NFL DFS in years past. And then this offseason quarantine hits. I'm playing League of Legends. I'm playing MMA. I'm playing PGA. And not that I had any domain expertise in those things. I definitely did not. But just playing all those different game types helped me understand DFS more. And, you know, you, of course, uh, play all of these niche sports. I'm curious of how playing a bunch of different games impacts how you think about NFL DFS and, and DFS in general. Yeah, I think playing every different kind of aspect really can help you in different ways. And it can teach you like different traits and different ways to approach things from a game theory perspective. I remember like three or four years ago, uh, Showdown wasn't a thing yet. And DraftKings was just adding Soccer Showdown. So what happened is DraftKings added, I think it was before the World Cup. So uh, 2018, 
they had soccer showdown start to be a thing. So like a month before the World Cup, they started offering it, but it was for like friendlies. So friendlies for those that don't play soccer are just basically exhibition games. Think of like preseason NFL. So they're kind of junky. But what I saw was I played those contests. I basically considered it getting reps in. And once the World Cup started, none of the regulars had played it in the two, three weeks leading up to it. And no one had played it because it was just really sort of a bad product. And it was just sort of there. Well, what I found was the first two to three weeks of the World Cup, I absolutely was smashing showdown because everyone else was playing catch up to sort of catch up on what I had already learned on the ins and outs of it in the previous three weeks. So like, if you play every sport, it carries over to different sports. So like my League of Legends stuff will carry over to NFL, will carry over to college football. College football will carry over to college basketball. College basketball will carry over to et cetera, and so on. So it, it's something where if you're playing a lot of different sports, you sort of are really fine-tuning your DFS skills, I think, and making yourself as good of a player as possible. And the better player you are, the better you are at making lineups, the better you are at making GPP lineups, the better you are at knowing what optimals are. And it just is very helpful in general. Yeah. And how much of your success in niche sports do you attribute to having like a very flexible DFS mind, understanding game types, rules, and learning how to manipulate those to your favor versus just having domain expertise? Like I know more about all these random soccer players than you do, the kind of hand in the dirt stuff. I know it's probably a blend, but I'm curious where you put that premium. Yeah. So if you look at NFL, right, there is so much information on NFL. Some people spend just hours upon hours upon hours upon hours on NFL. I don't really find that to be super valuable because by the time Sunday comes at 1030, you have all the news you know you need, all the inactives you need, all the injury reports you need, all of the projections you need. So like you don't need to spend six hours on Tuesday all the time on NFL because by the time 1030 comes, you have a lot of it solved. Whereas like college football or these different sports, there's a lot of information that you just get as you go. So like soccer, for example, I just at, right before we came on here, I was doing my soccer lineup for today for the Premier League and doing the projections for Roto Grinders. The lineups aren't out until an hour before the game. So you need to be incredibly flexible because you only have an hour to make your lineup no matter what. So it's a situation where today the one team I think had four or five guys and were not projected to be in. One different thing or one different person at a missed price can drastically change a slate on all of these sports. And if you know who that person is, it makes it so that when you have that hour, you can spend that hour making your lineups instead of like, oh, hey, I need to spend 30 minutes to figure out who the person is I need to play. Yeah. And I think the thing I wrestle with, aside from doing a bunch of different content stuff, is, you know, getting familiar with the slate, understanding how the puzzle pieces work together. Can you pull off this game stack and, and not punt it off at too many positions while also not getting anchored to specific bills at builds and specific plays? Because like you said, by the time Sunday comes around, ownerships changed, prog- projections have changed. We have inactives, all of this stuff. How do you balance that familiarity with the slate? Because sometimes we do only have 90 minutes to redo everything. And you do like having kind of um, a frame of reference for what the builds look like. Yeah, having a familiarity, and this comes with playing over and over again. And I, I know people in NBA especially have talked about this, but it goes for all the sports. If you're playing things every single day for weeks on end and you see the same teams over and over again, you get familiar with them. So you get you notice what they're their trends are going to be what they're going to do in the event someone's out or someone's in. 
and you have an idea. If you don't play frequently and you aren't playing every slate all the time, you're not going to know that information. So it makes it very difficult. So I sort of pride myself. I know this has been discussed in the industry, like whether you need to watch games and whether you need to know what's going on. I find watching games to be very helpful because you might not get a full source of information on things. But if you watch like a NFL game and you see AJ Green go down injured for three plays and you see those three plays, all of a sudden, let's just say Tyler Boyd is in his role and you know that Tyler Boyd's the immediate benefactor. And then all of a sudden, A.J. Green's rolled out on a Sunday. You know then right away who most likely is the person who is the biggest beneficiary to that because you've watched the games. And, and I've seen this in college football and other sports where if you just have sort of an idea of what they're going to do in the event something happens, it's, it's a massive benefit. For sure. And tell me, uh, what contests have you generally been playing this year? How many NFL lineups do you find yourself building? Are you on Team OptoBro? Are you Team HandBuild? Where is the PSU fans uh, contest selection at this year? Yeah, so for NFL, I generally run, um, at the beginning of the year I was playing Showdown, I was running my one lineup in Showdown. But it, for me, the one lineup in Showdown wasn't super profitable in terms of just a lot of high-end players are playing very similar lineups because the optimizers are, and the projections are spitting them out. So I, I'm never team optimizer. And the reason is, and this is sort of something I've said before, um, I don't know if you and I have talked about it, but like people that struggle in the industry are people that run blind optimizers and they don't know how to manually edit stuff. Like, yes, the projections are very important and knowing all the projections are incredibly important. But if you can't sort of manually edit them it becomes a big detriment to your game because you're just not going to make the proper adjustments a lot of the time. So uh, for NFL, I've been running one lineup for mains, one lineup for the 1 p.m. onlys, uh, occasional showdowns, but I've sort of limited my play to some extent because I'm mainly getting in my main volume in college football. So by the time Saturday is done, like my Saturday is like 6 a.m. till 3, 3 a.m. So I'm basically on the computer the entire day. So when, when college football is over on the 3 a.m. time, I'm fried. My brain is drained. So, like, I'm still playing NFL, and I'm still taking it very seriously, obviously. But it's a situation where I'm not spending 40, 50 hours on NFL on a given week. But, yeah, so I'm always on team handbill, but I use the projections an incredible amount as well. Yeah, and um, sorry, did, did you say how many, how many lineups you, you, you end up making? Yeah, so I'm generally only making one lineup, and I'm just focusing one. on single entry. Yeah, except for at the end of the year, one of my favorite tournaments is actually it's they run salads for it all year. It's the fan championship on FanDuel, the $250 buy-in. I'll probably end up with 50 to 100 lineups in that at the end of the year. But otherwise, I generally focus on my one lineup for NFL. But a lot of that's due to my fatigue due to college football. So when you're only building one lineup, I mean, you know, that I've seen kind of in these higher stakes, single entry things, like we've kind of, I've seen three types of styles where people are running like a near cash optimal. You see the ones that are like near cash optimal with one or two pivots. And then you see kind of like the over leveraged game stack. Like I'm just going to do the triple stack. Hope this game goes off. Leone won the Thunderdome last week with a big KC jet stack where in that kind of spectrum of style, would you say your single lineups come in? Generally my single lineup is incredibly optimal and I generally don't really tweak much around it, but that's because um, I would say like 25% of my action is GPPs. And a lot of the time I end up on a not very 
Um, super chalky lineup. Like my, my lineup will usually be owned, but it's not usually owned like 100, 150 times, except for two weeks ago where like in the $250 double up, it was like 40% owned and everyone and their mom had it. But uh, generally I stay very, very straightforward with optimals in NFL. Um, and that's because most of my play is in head to heads and it's not in other contests. And I've realized a lot of people, even in single entries, won't run sort of that optimal. They'll sort of do what you were talking about with slight differentials or they'll go with a full on game stack. So what is your thought of not tweaking like your double up and in, in cash game lineup in the single entry GPPs? Uh, I think it's slightly minus EV. Uh, I think our, our buddy Joe Holka, he's someone that I think understands what to do in single entries very well. How if I was doing things exactly optimally and exactly perfectly how I would do it, it would be what he does. And what he generally does and what I found he does is he plays a very, very optimal chalky lineup. And then he adjusts one or two pieces generally at the receiver position and ends up on a very underowned person. And he correlates his lineup better than what I would correlate my lineup as in terms of just what the optimal is. Yeah, no, for sure. And uh, that actually segues to a good plug. Next week on this show, I'm going to have Holka and Leone on. We do the Tilt Space show. We've been building lineups for that show together and playing in the higher stakes stuff. So we are going to pull the curtain behind how the sausage gets made, which is generally Leone and I trying to talk Holka into a really thin running back play that he doesn't want to (laughs) play. If, if there's one thing I know, so we've talked about this before. So like Joe, Joe was originally with me at Fantasy Labs years ago. And like, we've been good friends for years. And I would say I am probably one of the most impactful people into how he builds lineups. But that guy does not get off of the chalky high priced running backs. It's like he is playing a Christian McCaffrey or an Alvin Kamara and those guys or Saquon Barkley. He's playing them. You cannot talk him off of those guys no matter what but i think what his strategy is and his plan is generally very good and well thought out and it's it's always very similar so the issue is is like when you got a 4k running back that projects well that joe doesn't play then he's going to struggle on a week when that guy goes off but when that guy struggles joe's going to generally have a really good week but it's not that joe won't play a cheaper running back like i'm assuming joe played jamal williams last week i assume that's what he was doing but he'll play a guy like that if they're cheaper and he knows they're going to be basically like a seven or eight K running back. He's just not going to play someone that is getting an incredible, uh, an incredibly increased role, but isn't like locked into a massive pass down volume and massive rush volume. Yeah. I do want to circle back to that thing. And so if you about the thing about kind of playing just one single lineup across those contests, is it just because it's just too much work to go in and make all those individual adjustments relative to contest sides. Like if you say, I feel like it might be negative EV, I'm just curious why, why you would take that angle. Yeah. So for me, it's more so like I have, I only have so much time. We were talking about before we came on right now, I'm probably working, I would say 15 to 16 hours a week or a day. I'm sorry on different things, whether it's my own play, whether it's Roto Grinders projections um, everything factored in. So like, by the time Sunday comes college football, like I'm on like back to back three hours of sleep. I probably look like empire maker to some extent in terms of where my head's going in those the situations. And I'm just like fried when Sunday comes. So like when Sunday comes, I'm focused on making my optimal lineup as optimal as possible and as good of a lineup as possible. So when I look at like my single entry stuff and I have like $500,000 in single entry stuff, 
I look at it like, yeah, I'm giving away, let's say 10, 20% ROI on that, but that's not worth it for me, just where I'm at on the week to really adjust it. So I get, I, and I'll let this go, but then why not just play that or sit those contests out? Like if the EV is not there. I think it's still a positive EV situation. So for me, it's a negative EV compared to what I could do, but it's still a right. positive EV situation. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. And so the idea of like, you're sacrificing EV for getting your lineups are probably not going to have like a ton of top five or top 10 equity, but it's going to have a lot, a, a decent amount of, of min cash equity. Correct. So like, I would expect like, let's, I mean, we obviously can't quantify it, but like, let's say a single entry contrast, I would expect my ROI to be 15%. If I tweaked it and made some small adjustments, maybe it would be 25 to 30%. So like in the long run, if I have, let's say, one two thousand dollars um, in single entries for each given slate. Then I'm looking at maybe um, two three hundred dollars each week that I'm giving up in equity. But by doing that, I'm also making my optimal better because I'm spending more time focusing on that. So like it's always give and take, and that's something in DFS. Like with playing all these sports and doing all the stuff I do, you only have so much time that you can spend on certain things. So like you're going to give up equity in certain spots to gain it elsewhere. So like. For me, my my college football is the priority. Uh, my ROI in college football is going to be the highest of any sport on a given year, generally. So, like, I don't want to uh, give up, let's say, three hours of time in college football to divvy it up to somewhere else where my ROI is going to be less. So, like, it's all a give and take situation, and just about prioritizing in what is important and what is less important. And that's generally how I approach things. In one place, you probably definitely make up the EV two is thinking through late swap scenarios, which is so much easier to do for one lineup. I know I'm generally building five lineups plus whatever we do for the tilt space. And even then I find myself being a little scattered and scrambled coming to the different late swap scenarios. But I assume if you're locked in on that one lineup, you can see those puzzle pieces much clearer. Exactly. And that is actually the strategy. Like you and I haven't talked about it, but it was a perfect segue into what my strategy has been so far this evening. So, so far this NFL season, my strategy is to, at the one o'clock games, by the time they are over, be so, so, so far behind that I have no choice but to swap. And both times that that's happened, it so happened that I was on one Seattle receiver or I wasn't on one Seattle receiver. And the other one was going to be significantly less owned. And then I also ended up on Russell Wilson. So the first time it happened was, let's say, five weeks ago, where I was originally on DK Metcalf. And then I had Kyler Murray. And what it ended up doing was swapping off of those two onto Russell Wilson and onto Tyler Lockett. And that was the week Tyler Lockett went nuclear. And I also ended up on Austin Eckler over, I forget who the chalk running back was that week, but there was like a heavy chalk. It was Jonathan Taylor, I think. Uh, Jonathan Taylor had like six to eight points. And I ended up swapping off of him to Austin Eckler. And then last week, I was significantly behind because everything at 1 p.m. went very poorly for me that I originally had Tyler Lockett and I had Jimmy Garoppolo. And what I did is I swapped off of Keenan Allen down to Kendrick Bourne, up from Tyler Lockett to DK Metcalf and up from Jimmy Garoppolo to um, Russell Wilson. And then similarly on FanDuel, I was originally on Ayuk and Lockett and I moved from that to DK Metcalf and Kendrick Bourne and both swaps were significantly, significantly positive swaps. I think DraftKings swap was like 56 points and the FanDuel swap was like 25 to 30. 
So when you say this has been a key part of your strategy, are you saying you are per, are, are you constructing your lineup um, and specifically breaking ties to having more late game players? Obviously, the pool is more limited when we only have a couple of games. But is that a consideration that's kind of even breaking ties for you when you're deciding between players? Yeah, so both of these situations, it didn't end up like that at all. The, the situation played out where I was just so drastically far behind going into the late games. I had no choice but to swap drastically onto people that would be significantly lower owned. And luckily, both of those weeks where I had that option, there was plays that worked out for me in that situation. Um, but that is the tiebreaker I use. Uh, in all sports, if I have a situation where I'm like right between two guys or like right between a 2v2 or 3v3 or whatever, I will prioritize flexibility as a tiebreaker because flexibility can be incredibly important. Uh, As I've seen twice this year, I I went from what my original line would have been both weeks to literally losing 100% both weeks to smashing and being a top 5% line at both weeks. So like for me, I think I ended up making like 30 to 40 grand those two weeks compared to what I would have made on my original lineup just because I had that flexibility available. And when you're making those late swap decisions, um, are you rerunning um, uh, using an optimizer? Are you doing that all just looking at estimated ownership projections and seeing where you can get the most leverage on chalk? Yeah, it's generally just me looking at, at that point, like in those situations, it doesn't really matter uh, the projections per se. It matters more where I can get the leverage and where I can avoid the chalk situation. So like last week I knew, Lock, it would be incredibly high owned. And I knew the Garoppolo would be very high owned on drafting. So like, I know I could get Russ at, let's say 10 to 15% compared to that of Jimmy at like 30 to 40. And I know I can get Lock it at, let's say, I think he was 40 to 50 compared to DK at like 10 to 12. And it's a situation where like, it wasn't only I was getting off of chalk, I was getting on to the perfect leverage guy off of them as well, both times, because I went from like, if DK has 40 points, Lockett probably is not going to produce very much. And that is obviously what happened. Like Lockett still ran pretty bad and could have obviously had a better performance. But if DK has 40 points, there's only so many points to really accrue. Are you making these as a global swap uh, on this one lineup? Uh, again, kind of regardless of contest, are you looking at specific head-to-heads? You're looking at specific GPPs and, and seeing how aggressive you need to be relative to the contest or opponent? So it's primarily a global swap. Uh, generally, I open up any head-to-head that is uh, 215 or higher. So in those in individual matchups, and it was actually interesting because like last week I looked and uh, I had like a 215 and a 530 that were, I was actually probably ahead or very close with them. So like I did not swap compared to like in most situations, like I'll global swap, like GPPs, I global swap, double ups, I global swap because I know what sort of situation I'm in. And part of this goes back to what you were talking about earlier, like me playing all these sports, it helps you sort of know where you're at within a slate, which if you don't know you're behind, you can't make a swap. If you know that you are significantly far behind, you make swaps or similar. Like if you know you're like close or slightly behind, you know that you need to maybe make a swap, but not as drastic as one as you would have otherwise had to make. 
Yeah, I think for me, it gets really tricky with some of the bigger field GPPs. And there's so many variables. Like I'll give you an example. I was talking with my buddy, Pat Crane. I do the ship chasing podcast with him. He had a really interesting lineup last week in the single entry where in the early games, he had basically the four smash pieces. He had Cook, Devontae Adams, Miles Gaskin, and the Dolphins defense. So like all the pieces you want. And then he had it around a pretty contrarian game stack with Herbert. Uh, in a bring back with Judy. So like other than Keenan, he was already way off the board and he was trying to figure out, do I swap to the more chalky Garoppolo Kittle construction now that I already hit this? Um, He ended up sticking with it, which obviously worked out. But that was one of those situations where it's like, yes, I think you raise your floor and in, in your kind of baseline equity, but I don't know if he changed his chances or might've even lowered his chances to actually get first place in a 10,000 person contest. Yeah, it's a situation where I I think that it depends. The bigger the tournament, even if you hit that contrarian stack, you need to just optimize your points. But like you said, sometimes optimize your points. Like you end up on a 60% owned Kittle, well, then you're you're really going to be increasing yourself. But it's a situation where the smaller the field, if you're in like a 100 or 200 person field, I'm sure you guys have talked about this in the tournaments you guys are playing. You don't need to be incredibly contrarian you just need to be contrarian in certain situations and i think you need to make up points where other people don't i think blender has actually talked about it jordan cooper i know you guys have done some stuff as well but you need to maximize your points where other people are not getting them so like if if let's say uh miles gaskin has 30 points but miles gaskin is 98 percent owned it doesn't matter what miles gaskin yeah. does if you get a guy that is 2% owned, get 30 points, and everyone's playing a chalk guy that gets 15, that is incredibly important. But also similarly, like if you get a chalk, if you get a guy that like, let's say you have a 20% owned guy and other people have a 50% owned guy and the 20% owned guy wins by five points, that's still a huge situation where you are beating that entire subset of people by five points. So it, it's it's all about getting points where other people do not get points and increasing your equity that way. The more we talk it through, is is the next frontier of DFS getting having the sites release updated ownership and projections based on early ownership and late inactive news? Like to me, that is the most valuable information when we're discussing through these things. Obviously, you can eyeball it, like you said, but it would be really nice to have that dialed in. And we have so much more information versus what we know at 1 p.m. Uh, it's definitely a possibility. The issue is, and that we've seen this, is like most novice players, which are a majority of the field, and it's always weird to talk about this because you and I are in the industry. Everyone we really talk to, they're in the industry. So like we're talking to guys that play a lot of money, play a lot of contests, play a lot of sports. Most of the customer base is very novice. They are just people that are playing their $20 entry, hoping to hit something big, and that's just a majority of the people. People like that just aren't making adjustments, which then, so like all of a sudden we adjust to what we think and ownership that we think gets changed, but it really doesn't get changed that much because 95 plus percent of the player pool is a very novice player that isn't making those adjustments. So it's very difficult to sort of quantify how much of that is adjusted. Yeah. All right. Let's move into some slate specific stuff. If you guys are watching over at Roto Grinders or on my channel, hit the subscribe button. Give us the like. Let's keep this train rolling. Have really enjoyed talking to people uh, about their process, kind of from a higher level point of view about how these guys think about it. And uh, I appreciate you guys tuning in and watching us here. So, Sean, you you mentioned that you do um, start 
from kind of an optimal base? Like, what does that look like? Are you running an optimal? Like, I'll just pull up here. I pulled up the blitz projections. I ran the optimal. I have no constraints or anything on here. Is this kind of how you would start your process for what your lineup would look like? Yeah. So generally, I will wait until later in the week, and then I will see like an aggregate projection or projections from like different sources and see what ends up making sense within those projections. And then I'll sort of start narrowing the player pool down. Like by the time Sunday happens, I would say like when I'm looking through the lineups, there's maybe 15 people I would say are in most considerations. Cause it's all you generally like most weeks in, in cash for the optimal, you end up with like, let's say four to six locks, what positions they are. You don't know on a given week. Um, some weeks they'll be running backs. Some weeks they'll be receivers. Some weeks they'll be quarterbacks. It, it's all going to be uh, changed based on that stuff. So, like, what I will do is I will see what, like, sort of the aggregate projections look like. And then I'll sort of be like, okay, here are the X amount of locks. And then once you get the X amount of locks, you're like, all right, I have three spots for tight end, receiver three, and receiver two. I have 20K to spend on them. Let's see what makes sense within that construction. And when you're building these, uh, for your, are, are you focusing on any correlation whatsoever, like forcing in a quarterback to wide receiver stack, any kind of correlations or like, where is the finesse element coming off of the optimal? Yeah. So generally the finesse will come from sort of narrowing down that player pool to 15. Um, I will use as tiebreakers receivers that are with the quarterback. For example, the, the week Brandon Cooks had his 35 point games. I think I had him at like 8%. And it was like sort of him or one or two other guys within a lineup. So the way that I went down and finessed that was he had the correlation. If he's going to have a big game, Deshaun Watson's more likely to have a good game. So it sort of helped me make my 2v2 or 3v3 decision that week based off of him having correlation with the quarterback. Um, some weeks I won't make that that situation happen. And some weeks I will. But I use correlation as a tiebreaker. And if there is correlation between a quarterback running back or bring backs um, I will factor that into my thought process okay sounds good yeah and I would say um, you know for the contest it sounds like in general you're maybe playing even smaller field contests than I am like what would you say the average GPP size contest you're playing is so I generally will play every GPP that that's down um, so I'm playing like generally I play like every contest 250 down is what I'm generally playing. And then on occasion, I'll play like on FanDuel, I'll play the Monster sometimes. On DraftKings, I'll play the Wildcat sometimes. Um, and so like, I'll make adjustments to play the bigger stuff too. But uh, a lot of the time, my focus is generally on the optimals. And even in G- big field GPPs, we talk about it like we just talked about, you still have a positive ROI in the big field GPPs. You're just not going to have the massive upside with running very optimal lineups um, in those. But so like, I'm playing a lot of similar contests as you are with the single entry stuff. Like I'm playing all of the Roto Grinder single entry stuff on FanDuel. Um, so if you guys haven't been playing that, make sure you're checking that out. But I've been able to play that and I like to focus on those a bit. Um, but again, like I said, my main focus and priority is making sure my lineup is as optimal and good as possible. And then from there, I'll make some adjustments if I have time. But most of the time I end up running that. Yeah, and we'll make a lineup today on FanDuel. Sean mentioned that Roto Grinder series at single entry. They have price points at $5, $33, and $100. I've been playing all three of them. Very good contest. And um, yeah, I've been having fun with that. I've been making kind of a, the core lineup for the $100 and then making a couple tweaks 
for the other ones. And I know they've been posting out uh, the leaderboard and then you can advance uh, to a final round as well for some top prizes there. So definitely check that out. Um, Let's circle back here to kind of looking at this optimal as we kind of think through how we would start building a lineup for week nine. And obviously, as Sean said, both of us um, are only working with the information we have here. We have lots of inactive news that's going to come out from practices today and we'll get a better read on stuff. But again, this is all uh, we're trying to teach ourselves how to fish here and uh, let's not get too bogged down on the specific plays. Um, You know, one of the first things I see when I look at these, and I like having the ownership percentages up here. And the other thing I like to do, as opposed to getting anchored to like, oh, these are the top one to two optimals. I like looking at it by position and seeing what kind of quarterbacks are popping up. Not saying like, this doesn't mean you have to play Josh Allen, but it might say, oh, Drew Locke is pretty interesting at this ownership and this price. He's projecting as a nice points per dollar play. So do you like that idea of kind of going through and seeing the kind of plays it's spitting out? Yeah, definitely. I think that's the best way to do it. Because, like, you might not play someone, but, like, for example, right, Russell Gage right here. You look at Russell Gage, and you can tell he's popping. So, like, what it does, and the best way I I like to describe it is it makes you look at him more. You may not have been considering Russell Gage before looking at this, but as soon as you look at this right here, you're going to look at Russell Gage. You might not end up playing him. You might end up deciding that maybe his projection is too high. And this is what we sort of talk about with manually editing. Like, if you're not manually editing stuff – Russell Gage is going to pop. Russell Gage is going to end up in a lot of your lineups. Russell Gage is going to be a heavily owned guy for you. If you manually edit, and let's say you hate Russell Gage. Let's say you think Russell Gage is terrible. I'm not saying you do or don't. But if you manually edit this and you are like, hey, Russell Gage is an awful play. All of a sudden, you're like, man, if I don't do this, something about this, Russell Gage is going to be 55% owned in my, my run. So I need to drastically reduce that. So I think it's the best way to look at things. And you can just sort of see guys that are like, oh, hey, maybe I wasn't really considering this guy, but all of a sudden this guy really shows up well. Yeah, no, I, I think that's the case too. And how how do you think, like the way I've generally been thinking about plays like the Christian Blake and like the Russell Gage is, I don't necessarily love playing those guys as one-offs, but it might say to me like, wow, all these Falcons are popping up here. The Matt Ryan isn't popping in the optimal here, but if all of these Falcons are good plays, maybe there's an angle for a game stack here using two, who knows, maybe you could even do three, justify three, depending on the contest size. Is that a line of thinking you would take? I know that's not the type of lineup you generally build, but um, what do you think of that? Definitely. I think you just hit it on the head too. Like, right. Like you're looking at the receivers, you see Julio Jones, Russell Gage, Christian Blake popping up. Okay. All of a sudden let's look and see who they're playing. Denver. We looked at the quarterbacks, Drew Locke's popping. You see Jerry Judy popping. So maybe it's a situation where you can come in here, run Drew Locke, run Jerry Judy, run Russell Gage. All of a sudden you have sort of a little miniature game stack here that costs you absolutely no salary. And it's people that are just sort of popping on optimals. And then you look at the the expected ownerships. Jerry Judy's at 6%, Russell Gage at 3%. All of a sudden you also now have a contrarian GPP lineup too. So I think doing something like that makes quite a bit of sense. Yeah, and just to get in the weeds on these specific things, a few things I'll say. This Julio ownership seems pretty low to me. I think he's going to end up being pretty popular. I would not be surprised to see him double this in a lot of the single entry and three max at 7,200 once Ridley is officially ruled out. The other thing I will mention that's really interesting about the Broncos is 
Tim Patrick missed last week. He had been operating as the Cortland Sutton in this offense, getting a lot of air yards. He misses last week. They kicked Jerry Judy outside from out of the slot, and he leads the league in air yards last week. So the question to me is, it does seem like Tim Patrick is trending back. How do you view situations like that where we see these role changes and trying to untangle? Was that because Tim Patrick is out, or is this a trend to stay for Judy? Yeah, that's definitely something that always needs to be in consideration. The nice thing is in GPP lineups, you can sort of make your decision and live with it. And if you're wrong, you just lose that lineup and move on. If you're right, you're in a great situation. So I think that's very, very important when thinking things through like this. And it's always like a contingency plan type of thing. If if, uh, Patrick's out, Judy becomes there, Hamler moves here, all of a sudden you move a lot of people around. For what it's worth, I think they've sort of botched Knowing all these guys very, very closely, in my opinion, Judy should have been out wide all year and Hamler should be in the slot. Uh, I'm very familiar with both of them. In my opinion, that's how they should both be used properly. So them using Judy outside makes more sense to me. And he's better than Patrick, in my opinion, as it is. Uh, Patrick, obviously, just has more experience. But yeah, something like that is very important to consider. Like, okay, I think Tim Patrick's going to be back. Do I think Jerry Judy is going to remain in that role, or do I think it's going to get altered again? Because I'm going to tell you what a lot of people are going to do. They're going to adjust based on that in one way or another. Are people going to be um, concerned about Judy, or are they going to look at Judy as that exact situation where it's like, hey, Judy led them in air yards last week. Is he going to remain in that role? Yeah, probably, so I'm going to play Judy. So it's definitely something to think through for sure. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think, you know, another guy that's popping in these optimals and again is pointing us towards, you know, a game stack here. Noah Fant, you know, he's coming off of in his past two games uh, after his injuries, had 16 targets. He's in the air yards by low model. We expect this game to have a lot of points. So Noah Fant at 4,600, if this ownership stays in check, um, I'm, I'm really, the more we talk about it, I'm interested in attacking this game from a couple different directions. Yeah, definitely. And like coming in, like, hey, maybe that's not something we were thinking about. But now, like, I'm pretty, pretty talked into like, hey, we should be game stacking this game when we're making our lineup here because it makes a lot of sense. And you can do it really, really cheaply. And that's something like we talk about, like, you don't need to go in all contrarian all the time in every spot. You need to go contrarian in certain spots. So if I play all these guys um, at 5% and 3%, I can go chalk at other positions and it's totally fine. For sure. Um, let's build a DraftKings lineup here. I will mention, so I've been doing my weekly league. Two weeks ago, I made it 200 people and I was having to promote it at the last second and it was tilting me. So this week I dropped it back to 150 and it filled on Wednesday. You guys earned it. I'll boost it back up to 200 next week. Uh, if you are uh, not in that league, hit me up on Twitter or uh, in the comments, and I'll give you the link. I just don't want to get banned by YouTube. Also, I should mention, uh, I have a Discord, also a link in my uh show uh show notes uh roto grinders has a great discord i highly recommend hopping in these you can bounce ideas off of people and it's really important i think to just get feedback talk through this with other people so those are two good communities where you can do that let's build a lineup here on DraftKings. it sounds like we have both talked ourselves into some kind of denver atlanta thing here do you have a preference on on going matt ryan or drew lock so i think that we go drew lock but I'm open to either side of it. I, I like the Drew Locks pretty attractive just because of how cheap he is and the yes. uh, amount of things. Like just in my head, I'm kind of like Lock, Judy, Fant, 
Julio. And then and then figuring it out from there. <laughs> yeah, that's that's sort of what my head was thinking. And I, I think that like Julio might be chalkier, but these other guys aren't going to be chalkier. So like you can all of a sudden just bring it back with Julio and feel totally fine about it. You don't even have to necessarily bring it back with Gage. Or we bring it back with Gage and we hope that Gage ends up having a strong game. Yeah, this is this is actually a question I had got. I had put this one in the Discord, and someone had asked this, and this is now a, a point we're at in this lineup. He said, thoughts on double stacks with a two-man bring back in a single-entry GPP? So I think it makes sense, and I think it makes sense in this lineup because if Russell Gage, like let's say we pop in Russell Gage here, he doesn't need to have 28 points to really produce, or Christian Blake. Like if we pop in one of these two guys, if they get six for 60 and a touchdown, they're going to play Blake, even less. If Christian Blake gets you three for 30 and a touchdown, he's probably going to play decently well. So I think a double bring back here makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I should just point out again, this is um, again, contest size and all this matters, but it's a similar construction to what Leone had in the dome last week where he had the premium double stack with Mahomes, Kelsey and Hill. We got our Judy and Noah Fant here. And then he brought it back with two Jets guys. Granted, both of those guys were really cheap. Although I think you could say the lock Mahomes difference is similar to the Julio Jones, Braxton Berrios, but it was that double bring back. And I think it really works when you have some cheap pieces. It's really hard to do if everyone's super expensive. Yeah, definitely. And that that's the key to it here, right? Is that you're looking for a situation where you have so much salary to spend in this situation. Like if Julio, if you didn't have a whole bunch of salary, and that's part of the reason I think that we went lock here instead of Julio, or instead of uh, Ryan is that lock salary. Like in this situation, we're expecting both teams to have like, let's say four to five touchdowns. It doesn't matter which quarterback you have, so you might as well take the cheaper one because you're pairing it with two receivers on both sides. And for Locke to get there or any of these guys to get there, there's got to be a lot of points in this game. So now the interesting, and I find myself at this dilemma when I'm hand building and I start with a stack like this, feel comfortable, and then I'm saying, all right, am I just jamming in some chalk running backs? We can certainly afford it. Or am I trying to kind of leverage maybe some other high ownership spots? So I'm like, all right, Stefan Diggs in the Seattle passing game is going to be really high owned. I like Zach Moss. He's cheap. Do we try to leverage the Diggs ownership in that game? Where, where does your mind go here? Are you trying to jam in chalk now around this? Yeah. So my mind would be that this is going to be a very contrarian lineup. So if we have a very contrarian lineup, you want to sit there and pair it with a lot of guys that are going to be chalky, going to be, um, very good plays. That said, if you can leverage that off of stuff too, it's very good. But you really want to maximize your chance that if that game stack goes off, that you're going to have a very nutty lineup. And by doing that, you want to play the good, expensive chalk guys. Yeah. And so I do think there's an interesting decision point this week with Dalvin Cook. And in a lot of ways, Christian McCaffrey, to me, kind of feels like this week's Dalvin Cook of the guy who's coming off the injury. People don't want to play him because you're in DraftKings and it has this little IR next to him. And you see the opponent rank eighth and you see Mike Davis down here and you're like, how could I play Christian McCaffrey? Where are you at on him coming off an injury and what his role could look like here? Yeah, so I'm very intrigued by McCaffrey. So the issue is, at 8,500, he has to have his normal role, or it's just not as appealing as it would be. I think Mike Davis has done enough to at least carve out a little bit of a role for himself, which in that situation means Christian McCaffrey is not 
as great of a play at that price point as he would be otherwise. So obviously I still like Chris McCaffrey and I think you could definitely play him. And I think a lot of people are going to go into it with the concern, uh, with the concerns that he's not going to have a role. You might get Chris McCaffrey at a lower ownership than you'll see him out ever. And it's not like KC's a team that's going to shut them down. He's easily going to be involved in that game and they're going to be trailing. If they're trailing, Christian McCaffrey's going to get a lot of targets. So I really do like McCaffrey. And if you look at what we've done with the rest of the lineup, you can play both. Ooh, okay. I like that. Let's try mm-hmm. this. Let's do it. Let's do uh, McCaffrey and Dalvin. And yep. then if we, what, what range do you think we should be in for defense for how much salary should leave us for flex? Yeah. So if you look at the defensive range here and you sort of look at like who some of the better ones are, like the one of the better ones is probably the Giants. So you're looking at like 2,700, I would say, or you could go, um, even like Vikings against Detroit. I think that makes a lot of sense, especially with Stafford possibly being out from COVID. So if you have some of those guys, you sort of are looking at like the 6.2 K range or a little bit lower. Um, I do. I did have someone that I was looking at, but they're slightly above that. And that was Josh Jacobs. Mm. Um, But if you want to go to 2,400 at defense, then you probably have to give up Jacobs. However, if you go to 2,300 or maybe you go a little bit lower, maybe you could get a guy like Jacobs in, but maybe he's just a guy you give up in this situation. Yeah. And again, we keep mentioning this is early uh, relative to when you, when your lineup's locked, but Josh Jacobs did pop up on the injury report with both uh, an ankle and an illness, yet knee and illness yesterday. So just something to monitor there. Um, So if we can't get up to Josh Jacobs down here and, um, there's definitely some interesting plays here. Uh, you know, Juju Smith Schuster is in the in the buy low model this week. We know Marquise Brown is the is the squeaky wheel here. Jordan Wilkins has been a little banged up, and everyone is just absolutely done with Jonathan Taylor. I don't. Would you ever consider playing Jefferson and Dalvin Cook together uh, in a lineup like this? Probably not because they're just a little bit too expensive. And uh, and honestly, that's one of the reasons why I said the Vikings too. With the Vikings defense, it correlates well with Dalvin. True. Um, I think that Jefferson and Dalvin both getting there, you probably need like 30 points from Dalvin, 20, 25 from Jefferson. And that's just probably asking a bit too much out of them. But this is sort of why we went into this range. I, to me, Dallas defense, as everyone knows, is embarrassing. Uh, they look awful. And Juju is not a guy that's going to be incredibly high-owned. And all of a sudden, you sit here and you look at Juju Smith-Schuster. If he gets in a situation where he could pop off, this is the situation to be in because that Dallas uh, defense is atrocious. Yeah, it is. And I, you know, we see this. We saw this happen last week, right, where people get nervous about blowouts. They say, how could Juju have a good game when they're projected to win by two touchdowns and James Conner is going to get all the touches? But it's like, as we saw with the Chiefs last week, like, we don't know how they get there. They could get there with five passing touchdowns like the Chiefs did. And uh, so with Deontay Johnson uh, back and Claypool, I think that's going to really suppress his ownership. And um, I think he's a great tournament play. Um, how do you feel about him as a one-off here? No other kind of correlation, but then again, like you're not really wanting to correlate it with anyone on Dallas anyways. Yeah. It's exactly what you just talked about. Like in a blowout, like people score points to get to a blowout potential. So you, that means you just need to get your production earlier in the game than having the whole game. I think Juju is a guy that is a guy that can just sort of blow up. You're going to have him at incredibly low ownership and He's just sort of a guy that's no one's really going to 
think about it, and everyone's going to sort of overlook for the reasons you mentioned. So I think he's a really good tournament play. Maybe for a single entry, he's a bit of a stretch and a bit thin. But again, if the Denver-Atlanta game has 70, 80 points, and Dalvin and Christian McCaffrey produce 25 each, what you're expecting, it might not matter much. If you get 10 to 15 from Juju, it might be totally fine. Yeah. I mean, I like this lineup. It accomplishes um, a lot of what I like to do. I think the ownership is really in check. You have some really nice leverage plays uh, as well. Um, yeah, I, I mean, this is this is a kind of lineup I, I would find myself very comfortable with uh, as of right now. Yeah, no, I mean, it looks good. It makes sense. And, and some of the things that you need to think about when making a lineup, make sure your lineup tells a story. If it tells a story... You have a direct path for it doing well. Uh, it goes for any sport, really. Like, your story can be super simple. Like, our story here is that the Denver-Atlanta game is going to have a lot of points. That's our story. And it's a very simple story, but it tells a story that needs to be said. Um, if you just sort of just spew people in, put people in, and your lineup just doesn't make sense, difficult to win uh, GPPs in general. And it goes for literally any sports. Like, I sit there and find myself in League of Legends sitting there saying like, hey, this team's going to be high-owned. This team is not high-owned, but if they win, they're going to have a big uh, big production because they just produce well in wins, and I'm going to play them. So it's literally just all about telling a story, and our lineup tells a very specific story. It tells a story that there's going to be a lot of points in Denver and Atlanta game. We think Christian McCaffrey and Dalvin Cook are the two best running backs on the slate, and then we think Juju Smith has a good chance to produce at low ownership. So it tells a story, and it tells a story that is – conducive to winning a tournament um whether or not it happens who knows but it tells a story that nonetheless yeah and uh i always i just want to keep mentioning this every week because i think this happens you know i see people in the chat drew lock huh like what are you thinking drew lock sucks um the the what the point of this exercise is not to say drew lock is a gold star lock of the week i don't think either sean or i would ever say that the the thought is we are going to build a coherent logical correlated lineup based on certain pieces and of, there's a reason drew lock is only 5.7% owned if drew lock was patrick mahomes at 5200 he would be 100% owned so there's a reason why the things we're trying to do here and trying to get first place. So yes, we're not saying Drew Locke is the lock of the week, but we built a lineup around him that makes a ton of sense with the if-then statement. If Drew Locke smashes, how can we win a tournament? This yeah. is the kind of lineup that can do that. 100%. That's that's the key to, to looking at stuff like this. Awesome. Let's build um, a FanDuel lineup. Well, as we mentioned, we got the Roto-Grinder single entry series going, different price points, $5.33 and 100 I um I definitely neglect FanDuel in my typical process. I do all my DraftKings stuff, and then at the last minute, I'm running over there, looking at the optimals, you know, getting re-familiar with the FanDuel thing. Are you kind of balancing your time, or are you one site heavy with your research? I would say I'm relatively balanced with a slight lean towards DraftKings, but I know 100% what you mean. Um, in certain situations, I prioritize uh, different slates over other slates. Uh, college football, for example, I prioritize DraftKings over FanDuel, which I actually should not do. I should actually flip that, but uh, that's another story. But yeah, no, you, it's, again, it goes back to the whole time situation. Like you only have so much time, so you spend the time on one certain slate or site, and then you sort of neglect the other one, not necessarily by uh, you meaning to do so. It just happens that way. 
Yeah. I had someone in the chat asking about the ownership add-on. That is the Roto Grinders Chrome extension. It is very useful when you're building. They have one for DraftKings and FanDuel. It is part of, I believe, the, the premium subscription. You just use your login to sign into the Chrome extension, and then you can get all of these various overlays, premium filters, fantasy points and percentage owned uh, value, all that good stuff. It's really nice when you are, you know, just looking at a lineup here and getting a general gauge for how chalky uh, a lineup might be. So yes, highly recommend the RG Chrome extensions. Um, I was just pulling up the FanDuel just to run an optimal here and get a little familiar with who's popping on FanDuel this week. Uh, I had a tweet last week, shot where it was like, Going from building on FanDuel after DraftKings feels like taking the 45s off of the bar and then just doing curls. Uh, it really it's does. It's, it's very similar to that in every sport. Um, in college football, we sort of see us like we on DraftKings, we have to make some very difficult decisions. And those decisions are like the equivalent in NFL of like, do you play Brandon Cooks or DD Westbrook? On FanDuel, it's like, do you play Christian McCaffrey or Dalvin Cook or both? Like that's where it ends up being. Yeah, for sure. And I'm already noticing here, uh, it appears that uh, FanDuel has priced down these bears pretty heavily. We're seeing David Montgomery and Allen Robinson both in over 85% of the lineups. It also likes Darren Waller here at 6,400. Josh Allen is in the mix. I would say Chase Edmonds, what's his salary here? 6,700. So he's definitely more affordable on FanDuel compared to DraftKings this week. Yeah, and Edmonds should end up being a very, very highly owned player on FanDuel at that price point. Yeah, no, it looks like here we're looking at the percentage owned as of right now, have him at 30%. And generally, too, with these ownership percentages, you can you can boost them a little bit for the single entry stuff, especially in a Roto Grinder series, listener leagues, where the field is generally a little bit sharper. Um, so yeah, he's going to be owned. Um, I, I kind of kicked us off with that last stack. Um, where would you like to start on, uh, on FanDuel? I can see what quarterbacks are popping here in the optimal. Yeah. So it's actually interesting. So quick, quick backtrack to the, the ownership. So yeah. how do you go through ownership? And this is sort of how I tell people how to use ownership. Ownership is never going to be perfect. You just sort of want to use it as like a guidance system to be like, this guy is going to be incredibly high owned this guy is going to be incredibly low owned or vice versa. Is that how you view ownership? And is that how you recommend people use it? Or do you think ownership, like this is what the ownership is, utilize it like this and go off that? Yeah, I think of ownership um, purely contextual. um, And as it's like every piece I put in my lineup, the, the entire game in the rest of that lineup has changed. You know, the second I put Josh Allen in my lineup, Stefan Diggs is worth more. The Seattle wide receivers are worth more. And then I say, okay, but these guys are going to be incredibly owned. Diggs is going to be popular. Lockett's going to be popular. I can still play that if I want, but now I can't eat Chase Edmonds chalk. I can't eat David Montgomery chalk. Maybe I'm having to get off the board with a lower own. Maybe I'm playing an Antonio Gibson type who isn't going to see a lot of ownership and saves me money. So for me, it's it's all contextual within a, a single lineup build. And I'm trying not to make macro decisions. This is what I would do last year. And why I never played Christian McCaffrey or Lamar Jackson. I'm like, oh, everyone's playing them. I can't play them. No, Peter, you yeah. idiot. You can play those guys. <laughs> yeah, and that, that goes back to what we talked about with Joe. That's what Joe would do. Joe would make sure he differentiated elsewhere so that he could play guys like that. For sure. Yeah. And that that is a kind of one thing here. I was 
talking about on another show, like last year we had the Christian McCaffrey, Lamar Jackson, where it was just like, they were breaking projection systems, breaking the salary stuff. I mean, this year it seems like one Seattle wide receiver, uh, Devonte Adams and maybe Alvin Kamara's floor. Like those have been kind of the consistent locks this season. Do you find those guys in your lineups a lot? Yeah, a lot. Uh, it, the consistent floor has sort of been hindered a little bit this year with like McCaffrey being out, Dalvin Cook being banged up. But what we're getting is these other guys that are getting the volumes for them that are maybe not as talented, uh, which is hindering it. But yeah, like I generally will find those guys in my lineup frequently. Yeah, let's um let's build here real quick. Someone said, uh, "Hey Pete, any love for Cousins and Thielen this week?" I, I think that's a nice play if if Dalvin Cook is going to be really high owned and you want to take that line. And, and leverage that ownership there. Uh, and I don't think people are too excited to play Lions guys on the bring back. Um, I think there's some interesting guys there, specifically Hawkinson, who had 10 targets last week when Galladay went out. So yeah, I like that line of thought. Um, yep. Sean, where do you want to start with our FanDuel lineup? So I think what we should do is play Matt Ryan here and go to the opposite side of that game that we went on the other side. I like it. I like it. So Matt Ryan here, he wasn't popping in the optimals, but which means he's probably not going to be too highly owned on FanDuel, I would imagine. And this is a good price consideration too, right? Like Matt Ryan is barely more expensive than Drew Locke on FanDuel. So you can play the Drew Locke stack on DraftKings and play the Matt Ryan stack on FanDuel. And if the game goes as expected, you're going to end up with good lineups on both sites. And then hopefully the one site, you'll end up with the nut lineup. Yeah, and that is a really... Uh, nice thing too, of like using the sites to balance your exposures. Um, and you can leverage the certain discrepancies across those. And, and, you know, it's a way of, of hedging, but also making sure you're getting in plays at, at better price points, um, where the ownership might not reflect it across your overall portfolio. Um, it does look like Julio, of course, is popping over here and won't be as highly owned. What's his salary over here? 8,200. So a little more pricey. So he's not going to be as highly owned. And then Russell Gage here appears relatively affordable. Yeah, 5,400. Yeah, I think we go with both of those guys. And like we did on fan or DraftKings, right? And that's sort of what we were just talking about. It's a natural hedge. DraftKings, we played Christian Blake. FanDuel will play Russell Gage. So if Russell Gage goes wild, we'll have one site with Russell Gage. If Christian Blake goes wild, we'll have one site with him. And then if Julio goes wild, you have him on both sites and you hope one of the other two guys makes up enough to make it worthwhile on both sites. And then all of a sudden you're live in both situations. Yeah. And one thing I was going to say too, on DraftKings, I think I would be more inclined to toss in um, Hayden Hurst in a, in a stack there, but on FanDuel, because it on FanDuel, because it's so cheap generally and the caps looser, I find myself paying up for tight end more on, on FanDuel. Is that similar for you? Uh, yeah, a lot of the time I play a kill or Kelsey on FanDuel, um, whereas you don't have that ability to do that on DraftKings usually. Sometimes you do, but yeah, that is definitely something I notice. So now, I, I mean, I'm kind of gravitating. Now, this is actually an interesting thing because we just said paying up. I'm kind of gravitating to Noah Fant in this lineup, or would you want to try to get up to like a Kelsey or Andrews because the salary cap might allow it? No, I actually think Fant was the the name I was thinking in the yeah. bring back. And, and the thing is with DraftKings compared to FanDuel, it feels like FanDuel is always more difficult to bring it back twice. And that goes to the, the whole thing we just talked about with the salary caps and the issuations like that. It, it seems like a double bring back on both sides is tough on FanDuel because you can just get better plays elsewhere 
for like a similar price point compared to that on DraftKings. Yeah. And immediately here, we find ourselves in another situation where our ownership doesn't appear to getting out of hand and we can really quote unquote, play the best plays. Let's see what running backs are popping over here on FanDuel. We mentioned uh, Chase Edmonds. Uh, Where did he go? I thought for sure. Oh, I'm on the DraftKings one again. Yeah. Let me go back. Um, We had Chase Edmonds, who's going to be up here. David Montgomery, Cook, David Johnson, Got to wait on the DJ Dallas stuff. Um, That could be interesting again. And then uh, Josh Jacobs is there as well. What are you thinking over here? Yeah, so I think we play Edmonds. Um, I think Edmonds is just the best play on the slate, price per dollar. Like, I think he's the guy you want. And then you sort of sit there and you look at your salary and you can decide Dalvin, David Montgomery, maybe both. Maybe it's a situation where you want both. But um, I think you play Dalvin and you just sort of attack that situation again. And by playing Dalvin, you sit there and you put yourself in a situation where you can now play David Montgomery and then you end up having a lower to mid price receiver. Or maybe you pay up a little bit more and get to a different range and you have a different type of guy to play in that situation. Yeah, Montgomery's so tough for me. He's one of like my biases from dynasty and season long where I'm like, I just do not like this guy as a talent. And then his workload is just 20 carries and five targets a week. Like, Yeah, see, I actually am different than most NFL people because I had David Montgomery in college. So like if you played him in college, he was quite a bit better because he got the same volume, but his talent was just better in compared to the people around him. So like you get a guy that gets 30 touches and five targets a game in college. Well, that's he's going to produce a lot more with that compared to what he'll do in the NFL with it. So I actually like David Montgomery. I don't love him, but I think what he does makes sense. For sure. Um, All right. I'm just going to put in like a placeholder defense here. Um, Let's put in the Texans against Jake Luton just for a second. That leaves us with 7,400 there, which definitely gives us stuff to work with still. I mean, Terry McLaurin, Will Fuller, DJ Moore, all of those guys seem like good tournament wide receivers to me. Yeah, definitely. And like you look at it, and I think this is where you sort of go back to a projection thing. I think we would agree that Lockett's a great play, McLaurin's a great play, DJ Moore's a great play, but we can see Lockett's going to be really highly owned. So I would probably steer clear of playing Tyler Lockett. Um, and I would probably go more towards McLaurin or um, DJ Moore. And I actually know that a lot of people are talking up Robbie Anderson. So I think what I would probably do is I'd probably use this as a spot to like, get a little bit of ownership discount and go with DJ Moore. Yeah, I like that. Um, you know, DJ Moore has uh, been seeing a ton of work. People don't want to play him. He had the Thursday night game where he kind of let everybody down. Um, so I'm I'm with you. And then you can, you can not only do that, but you can then boost up your defense a little bit there as well. And we built two very similar lineups in that we, we went with a, a stack, a game stack. That's not going to be too mega chalk. We, we got in some really good running back plays. And then we make, you know, the one key pivot here. Most of the field's going to play Lockett. What if Lockett doesn't pan out? What if that game doesn't pan out? We can really lap people with a one-off DJ Moore play. So I, I really like the angles we took in these lineups. Yeah, and, and another thing too is like, I personally will, I like to get clean sweats if I can. And you have pretty clean sweat here. Like you need the Atlanta game to shoot out. And you have Dalvin Cook on both sites. Um, you also have Julio and Fant on both sites. So it's a situation where, like, you have a lot of people you're rooting for on both sites, and then you're playing the best plays on the sites as well that are, like, sort of slate dependent. So, like, you have a very clean sweat that you know what you're rooting for on Sunday, and you can root for it that way. 
Yeah, that's interesting too, because I get that question a lot too of like if you're playing four or five lineups, do you like to have a core like we do and then you cycle a game stack and quarterback around it? Or do you like to have one stack? Like I want to have Russell Wilson in all my lineups and I'm going to cycle the plays around it. Uh, I, I don't know if you have a way to think about that. Yeah, I generally prefer clean sweats, but you were talking about it a bit ago. I like to naturally hedge things. If you can naturally hedge on sites, I think it's a, a great way to do it. Like if you were playing Ryan on DraftKings, he's significantly more than Drew Locke compared to what he is on Fandle. So like it's a situation where you're just going to split them very easily. And it's a situation where neither are going to be high owned on the site. So it's not going to kill you if the other one blows up on the other site. Uh, so I, I like doing that. But yeah, generally I like having a core. So if you have a core and you're like, hey, I have Julio Jones on both sides. If Julio Jones catches a 50-yard touchdown, you're excited. Instead of the situation where it's like, oh, man, well, Julio Jones got a 50-yard touchdown, but now I'm dead on FanDuel because I don't have him there. So I prefer having a situation like that. But it's it's each person has their own preference, I think, on that. No, I'm with you on that, too. I end up trying to have a core. I end up playing um, one lineup in a few different contests with that idea being, if we are right, we want to be right in a big, big way. If Julio Jones pops off, we want these two stacks to hit. We want these lineups in multiple contests. And yeah, we're going to have weeks when we brick, when Julio leaves the game with a hamstring in the first quarter. Sure. But the when those weeks do hit, we want to get paid off, right? Yeah. The, the worst feeling to me in DFS, the worst feeling is like, I love this guy. Like this guy is my favorite play of the slate. So like, let's just pretend it's Julio Jones this week. I love Julio Jones. And then I have like, let's say I play early only both sites, main both sites. And I have Julio Jones in one lineup because that's just where he fit. And Julio Jones goes up for 200 yards and three touchdowns. And you're sitting there like, oh, so I'm literally stone dead on three slates of four that I played. It's just an awful feeling. And like, you don't want to have that feeling ever. No, you you absolutely do not. Uh, Sean, let people know uh, what you're working on. You got all these sports going on, putting in these long days over at Roto Grinders. You and uh, and uh, Fear My Turtle got the uh, the premium stuff going on. Give the people the the goods here. Yeah, so we are in charge of the specialist products. The specialist product contains all the sports that aren't like a main sport in NASCAR. So basically, anything that's not NFL, uh, NBA, MLB, and PGA and NASCAR, we have provided. So like. If you're looking for stuff to play, especially at this time of the year when there's only a few sports to play, like you have NFL or PGA, and those aren't really every day of the week. Like if you're bored on a Tuesday, we always have soccer. We have college football going. We're going to have college basketball soon. We got tennis going. And it's a situation, too, where like Alex and I are two of the best in the industry at these type of sports. So like you're getting projections from the best in the business at those individual sports. And then also like Discord, we joked about it when uh, when I came on here. I'm the ninth, as of like a, a month ago, like the first month I was here, I was the ninth most active person in the entire Discord, <laughs> period. Uh, users, yeah, workers, everything. If you have questions about anything, like you can pop into Discord and ask me a question. I'm generally going to answer it because I'm always around. Uh, so it's just a really great product and it's really cheap. Like you get... 2025 sports over the course of the year for a really reduced price. So, uh, and also like these niche sports and these specialist type sports, the edge is generally bigger than what you'll find in all these other sports. So if you want to come on down and try out college football, try out tennis, we're always there and we love having people around. 
Yeah, definitely take advantage of picking these guys' brains in the Discord. Lots of good stuff. And like I said, there's, from my experience, a ton of value in trying out different game types. I mean, the best DFS players are puzzle solvers. You know, they they take these complex games and they try to think, how do I beat this game? We talked about it with Bales, reverse engineering. How, if I win, what does that look like going backwards? So guys like Sean, who have reverse engineered how to play all these different games, it will help you across the board. Definitely check them out. Follow Sean on Twitter, even though he generally is pretty quiet unless he's tilting some League of Legends match. You can find him, PSU fans too, on Twitter as well, right, Sean? Yeah, I really need to tweet more. I just like, I'm sitting there, uh, generally I say what I have to say in Discord or in chat rooms. So like, I'm not saying it on, on Twitter, but like, I really should tweet just a lot more. I just, I, it never comes to my mind. It's always like I'm talking to people in Discord. So I just type what I have to say in Discord and I don't put it out there on Twitter, but I really should do it on Twitter. Yeah, usually on Twitter you find me either tilting a League of Legends match or realizing a coach is a moron for something and and pointing out how dumb he is. Those are generally my go-tos. We, we can get you in the lab. I've been working with Hulka on his Twitter game. Okay. Uh, we, we, we could get it. You know, Hulka's helping me out with my thumbnail game. You know, it's it's we're trading secrets here. Okay, that, that works. Yeah, I, I definitely need to improve my Twitter game. It's definitely lacking. Uh, well, we really appreciate you coming on, Sean. This was a, a great show. Uh, if you guys are just tuning in, definitely turn back and watch the show. The first 30 minutes, all evergreen stuff about how to think about DFS in GPPs. Please hit the subscribe button on your way out. Hit the like for Sean Newsom, for Peter Overzet, thank you to Roto Grinders for having us. Good luck in week nine.